good morning. Welcome to Community Church. For those of you joining on us online, bless you. Pray you enjoy the worship this morning and our time together. While we were in prayer, just before the service, someone shared a verse about the woman with the issue of blood who came and he touched, she touched the garment of Jesus. And as he prayed, he talked about You know, sometimes we don't really know how to do that. We don't know how to touch God in such a way that his power is released. Sometimes we're just waiting on God to touch us. And God will do that when you're a spiritual child. God will do that when you don't know anything. But what he wants to train us to do is to learn to touch him, to learn to draw near to him. But I was thinking about that woman, and I thought, because this happens to us, we, we experience a touch of God, but then years later, or days later, or months later, we find ourselves going dry, and we think, oh, why isn't it working? Why isn't that happening anymore? Why isn't it happening with the frequency that I long for? And the question is, how can you replicate the conditions of desperation and faith and expectation that you had in that moment? It can't be replicated. But we can say, God, teach me. How bad do we want that? How bad, how bad do we want another touch from God? How, how badly do we need him right now in this moment? Blind Bartimaeus cried out against the flurry of objections from others who thought it was inappropriate. The protocols are wrong. The four friends who are bringing their paralytic friend and they, there's a crowd, they couldn't even approach the house, but they found a way. Desperation finds a way because it, it causes you to bypass all the normal things that stifle your, your, your posture. Sometimes we just don't want to look stupid. We don't want to look too desperate. We don't want to do it wrong. And we lose the very thing that we're longing to get. Last night I had a dream. And in the dream I was in a room and I was ministering to a group of people. And there was a, I, f- I could feel tremendous anointing, tremendous power in the room. And I could feel it oozing out of me and I was ministering to people and I walked up to a man and as I walked up to him I could feel the power of God going out to, and touching him but as I drew near I could I felt like the atmosphere it's, itself is going to overwhelm this man but suddenly I saw in the man's eyes in the dream I knew he was suddenly more concerned about his re- appropriate response to my presence how do he needed to look the right way in this ministry setting and all of a sudden he falls down but it was a courtesy flop and I'm thinking what are you doing? I'm in the dream I'm, why are you doing this? don't you know that there's power in the room? don't you know that there's anointing here? don't you know? you don't have to try to focus on behaving the right way you need to focus on desperation you could be drinking in this presence, I'm thinking in the dream you could be drinking in this presence but you got caught up in an empty protocol trying to do the right thing for whatever reasons I don't know and I'm saying today God deliver us from the behaviors we've learned to do in church 
that steal our organic and natural ability to respond to what is already in the room. Father, we want to draw and drink in the beauty of who you are. Father, help us. Help us this morning to taste and see that you are good. Let's worship him and let's cry out to him. Let's seek him with all of our heart. Let's love him with all of our strength, all of our soul, all of our mind. We touch some substance in heaven. But touching substance in heaven is only part of it. It has to be substance on the earth. I released a prophetic word not too long ago that we're moving from a a dynasty of dismay to a time of display. And that word dismay means confusion or promises that have not come into being. I felt this morning that the Lord wanted to double down on what Mark released in the beginning. Twelve years it took the woman to touch the garment of the Lord. I've wondered for many years how many opportunities in those 12 years was there an opportunity to touch the garment of the Lord. I feel that's what is happening in the room this morning. An opportunity. I hear the Spirit of God saying, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. There's an opportunity to touch the garment of the Lord. I want to open up the altar because the question is, how many more times do I have to come to the altar? How many more times do I have to attempt to reach out? But I'm telling you this morning, the Spirit of God wants to display the power of the substance of heaven in this room. I'm telling you, I was just in Quebec for 40 days, and day in and day out, we saw salvations, we saw healings. I'm telling you, a man came to our meeting who, at the age of six, had a respiratory condition and for 50 years has carried an oxygen tank around, and he was touched by the Lord in a moment. He ran up and down the stairs. He's never been able to do that before. Give the Lord an amen. 50 years he suffered with the condition. It was so unbelievable for him and his wife. He had no idea what was happening because it was so foreign to him. Could you imagine the woman with the issue of blood being touched in a moment and then suddenly you have to work that over time? I believe that there's a substance in this room for the delay of promise, for the delay of healing. I had a dream last night. I had a dream last night, and at the end of the dream, it was a box that got opened, and in the box were shoes, many, many shoes, unworn shoes. And the scripture that has to do with that is Ephesians. Ephesians talks about being shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That is more than just, that is more than just going out into the street to preach good news. That is about the movement of the body of Christ bringing the kingdom to bear wherever you go. So if you feel like you need a touch from the Lord this morning and it hasn't happened yet, this altar is open because there is a substance. There is a substance that gets transferred through the laying on of hands. There's a substance that gets transferred. And so I just encourage you to step out in faith. 
For the last few weeks, I've been reading Job. And Job's suffering was all on Job's head. He thought it was God. He thought it was God to blame. He thought, he thought this wasn't fair. This was unjust. But everything that was happening was an opportunity for Job to enter a dimension of a walk with God. Not because he was less righteous than the others, but because he was more righteous. And what he had walked in already gave him an opportunity where God was trying to destroy something that was in his life in order to bring him to another level. There are things right now going on in your lives, and sometimes you've interpreted them as you know, uh, it's not fair. I don't know why this is happening to me. I'm a better Christian than this one and this one. Why don't I get, why isn't it as easy for me as it is some of those other people? And the Lord is saying, I am doing something in you to bring you into resurrection life, a level of power a level of grace, a level of manifestation that you have never experienced before. The things that stand, the veils that keep you from experiencing my presence are not in heaven and they're not in hell, but they're inside you. But I'm using the circumstances to break through something in your life because I want you to experience more of me. I want you to experience more of me, says the Lord. The Lord is saying, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And sometimes we think, well, Lord, I did seek you with all my heart. And he said, I'll decide whether that's true or not. I'm the one that knows what fullness of heart really sounds like. I'm the one that knows, says the Lord, what it really looks like. Just because it's more than you ever did before doesn't mean it's all your heart. My promise is that if you seek me with all your heart, you will transcend your situation and you will come into something else. If you have not yet come into something else, there's more to be thrown into the mix. Declare, say it to yourself, let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let God be true. God, we say you are righteous. Hey, you are the one that never lies. You know all things and nothing is hid from your eyes. Oh God, we declare today that we are the blind ones. We are the ones that see in part. Oh God, you are righteous. You are righteous. That's right. Tread upon your complaints. Tread upon your murmuring. Tread upon your sense of injustice that blames subtly, that it blames. It says, God, I'm waiting for you. You need to do something. And God is saying, no, I've done everything I need to do. It's up to you to grab a hold. It's up to you to lean in. I keep feeling like there's this sense of injustice that we entertain. And there's something wicked in that sense of injustice. Because it, at, the, at its core, there's an accusation. 
Listen, when, when Satan was thrown out of heaven, he became the accuser of the brethren because he's the accuser of God. At the root of his life, he believes that God is unrighteous. And so the whole kingdom of darkness that has been constructed around a lie, it started with the lie that there's something unjust in the way that God governs. And that lie has been transmitted, and it, it hides in the secret places of hearts. And it provides a, a, an unwielding, unyielding backdrop to a subtle rebellion. And God in his righteousness is after that. He's after that. He's, he's, he's after that in you, in us, in all of us. He's trying to say, no, listen, Mark, whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. Everything you have experienced, you have sowed. Let God be true and every man a liar. This is the truth. What we experience, we sowed. But Lord, when did I sow? Well, that's the unanswered question. But you'll never know that unless you accept the fact that you sowed. Father, we repent today. We repent today, Lord, for warming up to that voice that says, it's not you. It's not you. Lord, I declare today, I, Mark, I say for myself, no, it is me. I am the only one in my way. I am the only one responsible for my path. I am the only one responsible and guilty for the lack in my life. Lord, you are a good God. You have provided all good things, everything necessary for life and godliness you've already given. God, I break the lie. I reject the lie. I reject the lie. I reject the lie. Get violent. Get violent. Get violent. This thing that is sat in the back of your consciousness has stolen from you the provision of God. You have a direct line to everything you need. And yet you have suddenly faulted anybody. You can't in your mind, in your conscience, fault God. So it's my wife's problem. It's my job. It's the government. It's this, it's that. No, 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 no. Let every man be a liar. God is true. Father, we reject the lies right now. God, we say expunge from my being every deception. I see an angel reaching for coals on the fire. I see an angel reaching for coals on the fire. And he, he wants to touch your lips. He wants to touch your heart with the, with the coals from the fire to cleanse you from lies. Father, teach us today how to seek you. Lord, we know how to come to church. We know how to behave in this Christian environment. But Lord, that doesn't mean that we know how to seek you. Father, teach us how to seek you. Earlier in the worship, 
I was remembering some pinnacle moments in my life, and uh, I realized how few of them were connected to a ministry person doing something for me. That every, the most significant moments of my life happened organically, independent of a specific ministry. Now, I know that God will use people, but the point is, we like to fault others for our lack of breakthrough. You know, if, if my church was just more anointed, if that evangelist was this, if that healing ministry was more powerful, then I would get my healing. But I realized sometimes it was just me in prayer, in my room at the dorm, in a time of worship in a church, but without anybody laying hands on me, in a bar in Grand Center, or Coal Lake, Alberta, the glory of the Lord came on me. Listen, we walk as a group of people, but your heart has the ability to navigate into the provision of God. God has created helps that can add to that, add atmosphere, add opportunity, add grace. But none of those things ensure that we cross those thresholds. They only add a little element to that journey. We got to change our mindset about what the church is. Father, I pray today, I pray this week, this month, that those elusive breakthroughs that we've been longing for, that the hope of their proximity would surface in our lives, that it would surface in a brand new way. God, give us clarity. Give us clarity, Lord. Give us clarity. It's right in front of you. I'm seeing some of you, and it's like literally inches away. Inches away. But the closer you get to your breakthrough, the more the enemy pours on to keep you from having that transcendent moment. And the apathy and the weightiness and the murkiness and the confusion and the darkness and the hopelessness is itself the evidence that you are very, very, very close. I want to say to some of you men in particular, in business, in the marketplace, you have excluded yourselves, some of you in your mind, from some of the more spiritual aspects. And some of that you deliberately did. But here's, here's something else. Many of you are operating in gifts of the Spirit and you didn't know it. Some of you consistently operate in a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge in the marketplace. But it, it strikes you as common sense. It strikes you as a natural deductive reasoning 
And so therefore you don't see it as revelatory, but it is revelatory. I believe that some of you can, if you would just begin to realize that you are not the author of that intelligence, that you will, see God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble and he wants credit for what he's doing. He says, without me, you can do nothing. So start giving me credit for the little that you've tasted, and you'll be amazed what I yet bring you into. You'll be amazed what I begin to open to you. So, Father, we pray today, God, for that the, the barrier between the natural and the spiritual we begin to fade in our minds that there'll be a continuum of knowledge and understanding and revelation and wisdom that manifests, Lord, in that little impulse to say the smallest thing, to delay a decision, to act on a decision. Father, that all of these things will I realize are from your hand, God, in Jesus' name. Now I want to tell you one more thing. You may not understand why I do some of the things I do. Like, Mark, why, why are you so, why are you pushing us today, you know? We're just kind of here and then we're going for a picnic and we're thinking more about the picnic. When I was 13 years old or 11 years old, I can't remember how old I was, maybe 13. My mom was a Christian. I was, uh, I don't know what I was at that point. But my brother was working on a farm about a half an hour away from our home. And the following weekend, my my brother came home, and he told us this odd story. He said, I was working, tearing down some grain bins on the farm, and I was inside one of these old grain bins, and I was pulling out nails, and, and as I stood there, the building collapsed on me. And when it collapsed, I found myself outside the building, standing on the building. And my mom asked him, oh, what, what day was that? It was, you know, Wednesday or whatever. Well, my mom woke up very early on that morning, and the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, said, fast. And she began to fast that day until three quarters of the way through the day. And then the Lord said, kind of released her from the burden of fasting. What happened? I mean, here's the thing. She had no idea that anything was happening. There was no obvious reason to fast. There was no obvious information to solidify her. I mean, it's not easy to fast. There was, but there was no justification for not, other than the voice of the Lord, that little impulse, that little sense, I need to do this. Let me ask you this. If God put the life of somebody else in your hands, and the, the nudge to do something without evidence was given you, would that person be safe? Or do you... Like how many of us just need five good reasons? Yeah, I don't know. Give me five good reasons. You see, this journey that we're on is God's trying to free you from your need of information. Your need of proof evidence to justify and make that thing valid that's what living by faith is really about it's 
It's the eyes of faith. It's seeing and feeling and sensing and experiencing something that cannot be justified by the preponderance of evidence before you. So let's just say this right now. God, I haven't been faithful as I could be in that. I've done it a little bit. I've done it somewhat. More than some, less than others. But Lord, I want to be useful. Could the life of my child hanging in the balance be safe in, the, in my obedience? You see, responsibility and authority in the kingdom hinges on that. Oh, God, why haven't you promoted me in your kingdom? Why, am I, why aren't I experiencing what that guy is and this guy? And I, I want to do this. I want to be a part of that. Lord, teach us. Teach us. Teach us. Teach us. Can we just say honestly, Lord, teach us, God? But he's merciful. It's not about him being mad at us. It's not about him condemning us. It's not about him resenting us. It's about, okay, grab what you have, be faithful in what you have, and let's move forward from here. Amen. You know, I, I'm so thankful for the grace of God. I, uh, I was talking to somebody the other day about, about grace, and one of the it's amazing to me when I think about the fears and the torments and the, the background I had as a child. I mean, one of the most terrifying things you can experience as a child is having to speak publicly. And uh, I, I hated it. I, I mean, I was paralyzed by even people looking at me. And so to be doing what I'm doing is amazing. To, and, and the prolific spirit of revelation I get to experience on a regular basis is to me fascinating and, uh, and I'm just so grateful for it because uh, I just, I'm always stunned how many meetings I can be in and somebody just says a little phrase and this stuff just opens up before me like a book and uh, I just see it and so I'm telling you uh Whatever you think you have or do not have is subject to providence, is subject to divine enabling, is subject to tapping into something that God has provided for you. You know, the beautiful thing is this, is that ministries often come out of nowhere in that, in that you know, people become effective voices for the kingdom of God and everybody around them is surprised. That's that joke. It said, behind every successful man is a surprised mother-in-law. There, there is this, like we just are so caught up in the belief that what, what we do now is all that we can do. But the nature of the grace of God is that it unlocks abilities you never knew were possible. And a part of the grace that God wants to unlock today is for you to discover things you never knew were possible. I, uh, I was talking uh, the other day with Cam. We were having a little meet together, a little meet and greet, just the two of us. And we started talking about grace. We started talking about elements of of the supply of God. I can't remember actually everything we got into, but it was, it was really rich, and I wish I had recorded it because 
then I would remember more of it. But I remember sharing this one passage. It's Job 34, 14 to 15. Now you've heard me say this, and I think I've said it recently, that without him we can do nothing. And, and that is something that God always has to challenge in us because there's things that we think we can do. And I believe it was last week or the week before that I was talking about my journey where, where God was sort of dividing between the things I could do and I, things I couldn't do. So what happens, though, is, is I take credit for the things I think I can do. I take credit for doing the things that require some choice on my side. And uh, as we were chatting about this the other day, Cam was, I think it was Cam, was talking about how there was a time when David's families and his, his, the wives and the children and their loot was raided by, by Philistines. And everything was taken away. Everybody was taken slave. And they were, they were marched off and they got there and his men were so upset about it they wanted to kill him. Yeah, see, it's not new. It happens in churches today. It happened back then with David. Everybody wants to kill the leader or things don't go well. But, but it was amazing because they, they just come back from this long battle and this long traveling. So they're exhausted. They're tired. They're hungry. They realize their families have been stolen. Now they're mad. They begin to seek God, and God says, go after it. And so they go after it. But not all of them, because some of them just can't make the journey. They're just too tired. And, and I think that's the story. Anyway, they go after, they get it all back. And after they get it all back, they praise the Lord for granting them this victory. Now, how many of us would credit God in a situation like that? You know, because what we do instead is we, well, God, I did this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and you did this. In our minds, we have a division of labor. In other words, we believe that mostly this was our effort, but I'm obligated because of my faith to give God credit at the end of the day. But the Bible says without him, you can do nothing. And you, the, the problem was with me, I just didn't know how little nothing was. Because I was so accustomed to doing certain things, it wasn't until I couldn't do them that I realized, oh. Like when I was, I think I was saying, I couldn't get up in the morning for a period. Like I was, I was so proud of my diligence. I was proud of my discipline. I was proud of my commitment to prayer that I would get up every morning at 5 a.m. and go pray for an hour in tongues. And I'm, you know, God, I'm doing this for you. You should be grateful. And he's like, you're not doing that. And so what the Bible says is God resists the proud, and which means, that means he, he, he doesn't give you what it was he was giving you before. And all of a sudden you find yourself not being able to th- do the thing that you did. And they, well, uh, I don't feel the grace for this anymore. Yes, because God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Well, no, no, no. This is like a season of change, grace loss. You wish. You hope. It might be. But do you know for sure? Do you know for sure you've lost the grace because, oh, it must, be, must mean God is telling me to do something different. 
Maybe God's resisting you because he's trying to get at pride in your heart. He's trying to undermine the confidence in your own strength that you have that you didn't know you had. Oh, God, say it's not so. The point is this. Here's the basic bottom line. Everything we do, we do because he enables us to do it. And that's why when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he says, listen, who makes you to differ and what do you have that you did not receive? Well, how do I know if I'm holding this thing in pride? How do I know if I'm taking credit for it? Well, if you tend to look down on those who don't do that thing like you do it and say they should just try harder, when you expect people to be like you, it's because you believe you did it. There's no other reason for putting that expectation on others unless you believe you were responsible. If you believe that the power came from another source, then you might entertain the possibility that they don't have that and you wouldn't expect it from them. You know, somebody who's crippled, you're not expecting them to walk. But invisible abilities that can't be tangibly qualified or quantified because they're not seen like willpower, well, what's the matter with you? I can do this, you should be able to do it too. In other words, it's, it's called unrighteous judgment. Unrighteous judgment. It's, it's based on inappropriate, unrighteous measurements. Whoa. Yeah, let's stop doing that. All unrighteous judgments come out of pride. And are trampling on the grace of God, taking credit for what he did, and that's why God resists the proud. But here's the thing, it's fine. We need to go through this. Pride is our default. You know that. Like believing in my strength, crediting myself, is the default of the fallen nature. And so your whole life, God is weaning you from that. He's, he's pruning that out of you. And so the ups and downs, the rises, the ebbs and flows of pride and being resisted and grace in your life is a normal part of the journey because without that journey, you won't know who did what. And what God's faithful in is teaching you what he's responsible for so that when you, can, when you look at others, you don't look at them through the prism and the filter of self-righteous judgment. Job 34, 14 and 15 says this, if he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. How much does God do for us? (laughs) Everything. I mean, there's a reason it says that, that he holds all things together by the word of his power. And so, well, what is our job then? Our job is to pull on that power, to credit that power, to worship the source of that power. And when it is evident that others do not have that power, to not vaunt ourselves or raise up ourselves and hold ourselves in higher in a higher place simply because we possess that stuff. That's the that's the heart of servants. 
It's let me serve you with the grace that's in my life. Let me, the abilities that I have in my life, I'm going to use that to help you, not to use that to diminish you. What would church be like if we all did that? Oh, man. Wouldn't that be great? Father, open up our eyes. I believe worship, the purity of worship, is the outflow of acknowledgement of what he's doing and what we can't do. I, I believe that when we're saying, Lord, to you be the glory, that part of us, in our heart of hearts, part of us is saying, except where I did this, except where I disciplined myself, or except where I did the, you know, I didn't want to do that thing, but I did it and gave that guy $5, and now here I am, your faithful son, always doing the right thing, and so, you know, praise me a little. The heart, the heart worships according to its internal, unwritten, hidden value system. So the truth is we only give him as much glory as we can credit him with. But if we secretly credit ourselves, then we are siphoning some of that essence away from him, which means diminished worship. See, I believe that part of the, uh, the, you know, the summary of all the work that God is doing, it's perfecting worship in the earth. Heaven is fully abounding. It's, it's, uh, there's no restrictions in what heaven holds back. There's no thought in the heavenly beings of, you know, does this garment look good on me today when I'm worshiping? I'm, I'm dancing. How's my technique? You know, I, heaven is captivated with the beauty of God, and there are no eyes turned back towards ourselves. None. It's impossible. And as soon as heaven detected that in Lucifer, he, he got the boot. Why? Be, not because God's an egomaniac, but he deserves it. He's just that much greater. He's responsible for everything. He's the epicenter of absolutely everything that has or ever will exist, natural or spiritual. And so you can see the affront it is to his glory that we would use his substance to become something and then glorify ourselves in the face of others who don't yet have it. It's kind of ugly, isn't it? So I want to talk for a bit about grace in this sense. Now, there's... Let me, let me start here. I, I am increasingly unhappy with our current definitions of grace. Whenever you say grace, somebody says, it's in the unmerited favor of God. All the favor of God is unmerited. <laughs> Everything is unmerited because we have no merit. Okay, but that may be the reason, I mean, that may be an attribute of grace, but it doesn't define grace. Grace is unmerited, but what is it? It's power. Grace is an administration of something that comes from heaven that enables you to do something that otherwise, without it, you could never even think to do. 
It's always unmerited, but what it does is it brings an enabling. It is catalytic essence that gives gives the impetus to do the thing that you find yourself doing. And so, in that sense, within all of creation, there's two power sources. There's that, which is the life of God, and there's everything else. That's all there is. There's two power sources. That's why we talk about two kingdoms. That's why we talk about heaven and hell. That's why we talk about grace and striving. Because striving is essentially working out of a power source that is not grace. And the beautiful thing about striving is it reinforces you because it makes you feel like you're working hard, which only translates to merit in your mind. Let's read this here. Uh, I haven't taught about this in a long time, and I need to get back to it. We actually started recording my personal discipleship class some time ago, and we we got it organized, we got it together, and did a bunch of sessions. We were preparing it for an online training. And then we lost a portion. Uh, a portion I thought was really good. It got corrupted in, in the computer, and we haven't gotten back to it. But I think we need to. I think I need to teach on this more. This is one of my favorite paradigms of thought because when I was a young Christian at Christ for the Nations in Dallas, Texas, God was, God was doing this deep thing in my heart, which I didn't really understand at the time. But what he basically did was this. And, and for, an, for a young Christian, it was relatively early in my journey that he did this because... Usually what God does at the beginning is says, hey, you need to do these things. And God quickly skipped over that phase to me and said, it's not enough to do these things. You have to do them the right way. And the right way in heavenly terms means powered by the right source. Do you see that? That was Sanskrit. (laughs) As a French person, I must talk with my hands. Powered by the right source. It's not enough to do the right things. It has to be powered by the right source. In fact, what we're going to see is if it is not powered by the right source, it has zero value for the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that's a hard one. I, I can feel a, a little kickback there. No, it has a little value. No, it has no value. None whatsoever. It is temporal, earthly, it's passing away, it's already decaying. See, there are things that last forever and there are things that are decaying. Those are the only things that exist. When Adam and Eve sinned, decay, death, came on all of creation and the default, the direction that everything is going is from here to here, always from higher to lower. Energy moves from higher forms to lower forms. It's decay. That's what death is, decay. Your new car, never newer than when it came off the assembly line. Time, yeah, it takes time. The better built things last longer, but what God is offering us is something that cannot be affected by decay. That's what eternal life is. 
It can't, it is, does not reduce. It never reduces, it only increases. Oh, I was, I, I'm getting excited now. I gotta hold back. Because I'm seeing all the prophetic pictures in the Bible of the direction, the nature of the direction of kingdom authority is that it always increases in influence and essence and power and beauty. It, it doesn't decrease, it gets better. So there are two sources in the earth. There's the things that come from above that we call grace, and there's everything else. Well, in Genesis chapter two, verse eight, it says, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'll skip ahead says those wonderful things, but uh, a little later, verse 16, the Lord is instructing Adam about this thing. And it says, and the Lord God commanded the man. Doesn't say the woman, says the man. God made Adam responsible for this information. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but... Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. These, these two trees, the tree of life and the tree that leads to death, maybe we'll call it the tree of death, right? You know every tree by its fruit. So you call it, and I, there's a lot of people teaching weird things out there about this. Some, you know, you'll find the odd guy who say the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good. You know, because it teaches us good from evil. No, it doesn't. It teaches you a version of good and a version of evil that's based on your preferences. That's what it does. Everybody's version of good and evil is based on what's good for them and what's bad for others. How am I advantaged here? That's the good thing. That's why people can lie to themselves. This is, a, this is wrong. This is unjust. I shouldn't be fined for this. I should have won that court case. Yeah, but you stole that guy's car. Yeah, but he left it there. <laughs> and I needed it. <laughs> I mean, this perverse sense. So, just a few days ago or a few weeks ago, somebody was telling a story. They were traveling. Oh, he's sitting at the back there. Somebody, he was traveling, and he was seated in his seat, and he put a bag up top, and though everything was full. And this guy comes along, stops right in front of his seat, pulls his bag out of the overhead, puts it in the middle of the aisle, and puts his stuff in its place, and then goes to his seat. Now, you think, that's a ridiculous level of entitlement, right? How could you justify that? I, I, it doesn't even make sense at all. Of course, uh, our friend being the bold man that he is, he just simply swapped him out. 
<laughs> but it's, but I mean, this, this insane level of entitlement is a knowledge of good and evil that only considers my need, what I want right now. And so on that basis, everything is justifiable. Everything is, can be rationalized as permissible. And so this is what the scripture's telling us. Outside of God, there is nothing really good. He is good. And so what you have here in these truths, I mean these two trees, is death and life. Actually, let's go the other way. Life and death. Let's keep it consistent. Otherwise it might mix you up. Life and death. Father, show us today. Now, the tree of life is a tree of knowledge as well. It's just the source of that knowledge is him. Not my interpretation of the world around me based on my needs. What the Bible said, this level, this knowledge is corrupt. This knowledge is pure and clean and altogether wonderful. And so we've been given these two sources of power in our lives. And both of them are effective in producing catalytic behavior. They, they, they energize us to do things. And so we, have you ever found yourself having energy to do something and then later you realize I was energized to do that because I wanted something? Anybody ever, you know, it's like I work really hard when the boss is around but not when the boss is around? Because the catalyst for doing that is how I appear to the important people. This is, this is and I'm going to have to wrap this up. It's not enough to do what you think is right and avoid doing what you think is wrong. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And out of that tree comes the artificial definition of good and evil, which is equal to the law. The law is the articulated version of right and wrong that cannot produce righteousness. It only gives you a superficial definition, working definition, around the fact that you are fallen. That's the purpose of the law. But this tree cannot give you life. And so God isn't just interested in you saying the right things, doing the right things, coming to church, lifting your hands. That's where we all start. But he's wanting to go to the heart of the matter. Are you lifting your hands because... You are moved with passion and love for me. Or did you realize in this culture, this is what they do? In this culture, we shout, yay. <laughs> in this culture, we, we got to move around a bit. You know, I should go to a church where we don't have to move around a bit. I don't like moving around all the time. The point is, the definition of what is righteous and what is unrighteous, what is fallen and what is living, is very different in this light. And God is saying, listen, there's a power source available 
that can enable you to do everything that's required. But you can't have it until you're dead. Until you die. Until you stop believing that your obedience to the right and wrong as defined by this tree, this knowledge, is useless. In Hebrews, there's a scripture, it says, it's twice in Hebrews, Hebrews 6 and I think Hebrews 9, it says that one of the foundational doctrines of, of the church is repentance from dead works. It doesn't say repentance from bad works. It says repentance from dead works. Why? Because there are things that come out of the power base that is God. Man shall live by every word that proceeds from his mouth. There are behaviors, there are attitudes, there are activities, there are ministries, there are life, life goals that come out of the dictates of his word. Him speaking to us, his knowledge coming from him that catalyzes unimaginable energy and diligence and all the rest of that to do those things. But on the other side, ambition, pride, self-righteousness, image consciousness can also fuel a lot of correct appearances. The difference is life and death. Grace. See, God gives grace to the humble. Gives grace. Well, Lord, I, I, I don't have as much grace as you need. Well, there's only one reason why I resist and don't give grace. Only one reason. Pride. 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 You, you are taking credit for things that I'm doing. And I'm, in my mercy, putting a stop to that. Now, the word, the Greek word for grace is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. That's the English alliteration of the Greek word. <laughs> the gifts of the Spirit are called charismata, or charismae. They come from the root of that same word, which is charis. In other words, all of the gifts of the Spirit, everything, all the enabling of God comes out of grace. Because grace just isn't unmerited abilities, it's abilities. It's catalytic administration of spiritual, life-oriented impulses that flow through you and create behavior. So if you're here today and your life isn't what you hoped it would be, if your success as a Christian is spotty, if you found yourself bound by certain kinds of sin, judgment, lust, pornography, jealousies, the ability to be free from all those things is not harnessing, saying the wrong thing, or exhibiting those behaviors. Because you're still living out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's producing the sin and it's producing the awareness that you shouldn't sin, which only brings shame. And those two sides of the tree, they just feed each other. Grace liberates. Grace empowers. 
Grace is a catalytic, overcoming, resurrection ability that comes from heaven. Only two sources of power in the earth. A dark one and one that's coming from light. Grace. Father, thank you. We're not here to just be good. We're not here to do even the right things according to our culture to our Christian culture. We're not even here to do the right things biblically. We're here to seek the life of God. That the resurrection, the image of God would be manifest in us. Lord, we can behave like Jesus, but we can't be like Jesus unless you form him in in me, in us. There's a work that's been going on in many of our lives where God has been resisting your effort, resisting the things that in the past have not empowered righteousness in you, have only empowered your right to judge others. And God is bringing that to an end by saying, without me you can do nothing. His plan is to flow through your being. The resurrection power of God to produce an unusual, an impossible level of righteousness and purity. An ability that you couldn't even imagine to produce. He can do. So Lord, change us, we pray in Jesus' name. If you find yourself exhausted, If you find yourself on the verge of quitting, if you find yourself hopeless, if you find yourself exasperated that things are not working, this one thing I guarantee you, it's not by accident. It is not by accident. It is by design. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. And he wants you to be a trophy of grace a product of his life flowing through you. So we, let, we say, Lord, finish that work. Do it in me. Father, I believe. I believe right now. I believe you can make me pure. I believe you can make me whole. I believe you can change the way I think, the way I view others, the way I think of my family, my mother, my, chil- my children, my brothers and sisters, my neighbor. I believe, Lord, that you can bring something through me that the world could not overcome. That's the power available to you. Bless you all. So great to have you as a part of the family of God.